Well, kia ora, hello and welcome to the Coast Vineyard Podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. Uh, I will actually be sharing the stage today with Rachel Humphreys, so I just want to say a big thank you to her before she comes up. She will at some point come in and do some readings and things, so I just wanted to give a shout out before I begin. So uh, let's pray. Father, thank you that you are not <clears throat> out there somewhere in some separate heavenly dimension, but that you are here, you are present, you're in each one of us, Father. Your spirit is always at work and active. Give us the eyes and the ears and the mind to see where you're at work, Father. Give us uh, an openness and an awareness to hear your words today. And I thank you, Lord, that you would uh, speak and minister and that this morning would be informative and significant and shaping for each one of us. In the name of your Son, amen. amen. So, uh, how are we saved? How are we saved? One of the central, pivotal, most important points in the whole Christian faith is salvation. All Christians, whether Protestants, Greek Orthodox, or Catholic alike, believe that we are saved through the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. But quite how that works is a whole area of study. If you were to ask your everyday believer, how are we saved? You're likely to get an answer that includes the unconditional love of God, the problem of sin separating us from God, that Jesus died to take away everyone's sin, that through Jesus' death and resurrection, he opened the way for us to be saved, and that if we believe in him and what he did, that we will be saved. All right? And this is all great, and it's all biblical. Uh, but unless you're speaking to a very well-informed or mature Christian, you're unlikely to get much further if you were to press deeper. And if you were to travel back in time, you would get a different response depending on when you asked the question. Quite simply, there is no easy answer to the question of how we are saved by the work of Jesus. We have created simple responses like these ones I mentioned, and they're very helpful. But it seems that many Christians just stop there, and they settle on an incomplete concept of salvation. And whether we know it or not, I would argue that whatever partial picture of Jesus' salvation we have, that is going to shape our faith, our perspective of God's character, our understanding of the sinful human condition, and crucially, our response to the saving work of Jesus in our lives. So today, I want to outline the six different ways that the Christian church has taught how we are saved by Jesus. Each piece plays its melody and explores one aspect of Jesus' saving work, and each has its strengths and its weaknesses. But together, they create a rich symphony that resonates like Mike was saying, upwards, inwards, and outwards. <clears throat> but first, before we jump into how the church has taught it, what was the pre-Christian or the Judaic perspective? How did Israel understand God's salvation before Jesus? Obviously, Jesus was not the way to salvation, but nor was there a consistent understanding of the afterlife. Instead, the focus in the Old Testament was on your earthly life. And righteousness, or right standing with God, would save you from destruction and judgment in the here and now. Righteousness 
was achieved through a complex network of sacrifices and offerings, and according to the prophets, after who this view gets its name, by establishing justice in society through faithfulness to the covenant that Israel had made with God. In this model, salvation is very corporate. Entire nations are either righteous or condemned, and at times certain individuals are called to suffer or make amends, but usually on behalf of a nation. Salvation also develops over the long haul of history. For example, Israel are slaves in Egypt, and then four centuries later, they're redeemed through the Exodus. Over time, Israel repeatedly reject God, and so they are conquered and exiled, but then eventually restored to their homeland. The Old Testament, and particularly the 8th century prophets, testify that it is over the long course of history that God's purposes and faithfulness unfold and bring about salvation for his whole people. Now, one pivotal image of redemption that we see in the Old Testament is the Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement ceremony. It's when the high priest would make a sacrifice to take away all the sins of Israel. Once a year, the high priest would slaughter a bull and a goat and then enter the Holy of Holies. And it was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And this was the only day of the year that anyone could enter the most holy place. The high priest would sprinkle the blood of the animals over the lid of the ark called the mercy seat and then return outside to another goat called the scapegoat. The high priest would then pronounce the sins of Israel and touch the goat, and thereby transferring the sins of Israel onto it and then driving it out into the wilderness. So two key concepts of salvation are illustrated at Yom Kippur. <clears throat> the first is the sacred substance, blood which contains the life force, a power that belongs to God, not to humans. Blood cleanses the sanctuary of impurities. Secondly, is this transfer and expulsion of sin from the community. And these ideas that blood is required for the cleansing and removal of sin forms the basis of all subsequent New Testament and church models of salvation. So <clears throat> let's just finish here in the Old Testament. So in the prophetic model seen most acutely in Isaiah and then expanded in the Gospel of Luke. Sin is a failure to exercise mercy towards the oppressed and the marginalized, and therefore forgetting God's covenant. The effects of sin are oppression and violence. God saves by acting in history through concrete events and people to rescue the righteous and to judge the wicked. This model emphasizes the tangible realities of sin and death, the human suffering that comes from sin, and how God is active in addressing this problem in practical ways. But it also ignores the significance of the individual with its broad focus on the corporate, and it has a very long-term approach to sin for, uh, for salvation. And it's also far beyond your lifetime, and it is, of course, before Jesus. So how has the church taught things differently? Well, uh, the first New Testament model for salvation is the sacrificial model, described in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is our perfect sacrifice who died for our sins. He is also our perfect high priest who acts on our behalf before God. 
The whole Old Testament, Testament system of temples, offerings, and sacrifices, it all pointed to what Jesus would ultimately do. He was without sin, and he willingly sacrificed himself for us, our perfect lamb. Now we have no need for temples and animal sacrifices because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all impurity and removes sin from us. In the sacrificial model, sin compromises God's holiness and justice and the mercy that he has shown Israel. The sacrifices of the temple were designed to foreshadow the work of Christ whose blood, like that of the bulls and goats, unleashes the power of divine forgiveness and reconciliation. This model integrates Israel's temple practices with the story of Jesus, providing for continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it fails to incorporate the importance of Jesus' life and ministry in his saving work. Now, phrases that you might hear that relate to this might include things like, Jesus sacrificed himself for us that Jesus is the Lamb of God, or that the blood of Jesus washes away our sin. Another model, <clears throat> seen explicitly in the New Testament, was developed by the Apostle Paul, who, like the author of Hebrews, explained how Jesus' death was our effective means of reconciliation back to God. Since the days of Adam, we are all slaves to sin, and the devil is our master. But slaves can be ransomed into freedom for a cost. Jesus did just that. His death on the cross paid the price for our sin and brought us into freedom because the ransom payment of Jesus' death was infinitely more powerful than the sin it paid for. Evil was not just satisfied but fully conquered. We are now no longer slaves to sin, but children of God. Mm -hmm. This is the ransom model, recently renamed Christus Victor, the victorious Christ. Both Paul and the author of Hebrews use the same baseline framework, but they approach it through different lenses. Both explore how a sacrifice is necessary as a ransom for humanity's redemption. But much of this language, and certainly the, the cultural significance of these ideas, are tightly knitted to the people and the history of Israel, which makes it somewhat detached from our modern culture today. Phrases that you might hear that relate to this model would include, Jesus paid the price for your sin, and we have been bought by the blood of Jesus. For the first thousand years, these baseline models of salvation through sacrifice and ransom remained central. But they were gradually articulated further by the combined efforts of church fathers Irenaeus of Lyon, Gregory of Nyssa, and Origen and Athanasius of Alexandria, to the extent that we would now class their teachings as the recapitulation or the divinization model. Irenaeus and Origen highlighted that Adam's sin sold all humanity as slaves to the devil but that God essentially tricked the devil into giving up his claim by uniting himself to humanity in the incarnation. And if you're unfamiliar, the incarnation is what we refer to by God in human flesh in the form of Jesus. Think of it like a fisherman 
baiting his hook. The sinless Jesus was offered as a payment for the release of the devil's claim on humanity. But the bait, Jesus' humanity, masked the hook, the divinity of Christ, so that when the devil seized Jesus in death, the divine nature was revealed. And like a fish who swallows the hook with the bait, the devil was caught in a trap from which he could not escape. He was forced to give up his claim on humanity and his claim on Christ. Arrhenius, Origen, and Gregory saw the incarnation rather than the death of Jesus as the most important aspect of our salvation. Christ, disguised in human flesh, is the embodied union of God and humanity. And it is through his willing obedience that Jesus reverses the disobedience of Adam and therefore destroys sin and brings about a transformation of human beings so that we can return to our divine, in God's image, state. Athanasius went beyond just the incarnation and believed that Jesus' entire life brings our salvation. When Christ took on human flesh, the divine image of humanity that was lost through sin was restored. Not because God was lowered, but because humanity was elevated back to God's plane. Christ then proceeded to demonstrate what it means to be truly human, an image bearer of God. And he lived a moral life which reflected the character of God. To quote Athanasius, God gave himself to us through his spirit. By the participation of his spirit, we became communicants of the divine nature. For this reason, those in whom the spirit dwells are divinized. Overall then, in the divinization model, sin is turning away from God, our creator. The result is the loss of our divine image with which human beings were created. Christ responded by obediently becoming human in Jesus. And this union restored the divine image and raises human beings to participate in God's own life. This model incorporates the entire life of Christ in an account of salvation. But the imagery of deceptively tricking or catching the devil is hardly reflective of the nature of God. And its focus, humanity's divinization, remains unexplained. How does divinization happen? Still, phrases you might hear that relate to this model are things like Christ has raised us up, that we are new creations, and that we become God's image bearers once again. It was not until the Middle Ages that Anselm, a Benedictine monk who became the Archbishop of Canterbury, offered the satisfaction model also known as vicarious salvation. Anselm added, uh, addressed the reasons of why humanity had to be redeemed through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus in order to better understand how we are redeemed. And his answer is very reflective of the medieval society that he lived in. Back then, <clears throat> the lord of an estate had rights to his land and ownership of the people who lived on it. The lord of the manor oversaw justice and provided capital, a means for people to make a living, and they offered protection. In return, the knights, tradesmen, and serfs of his estate owed their lord their loyalty 
and respect. And if they were disloyal or offended the Lord's honor, then they were required to make satisfaction. Satisfaction was an act whereby the honor and right relationship between servant and master could be restored. Sometimes the grievance would be so extreme, the only fitting act of satisfaction would be death. As the creator of everything, human beings owe God complete obedience of intellect, will, and complete love. But humanity sin violated God's honor and thereby disrupted the order of the universe. God's honor is his godliness, his very divinity. Our sin, therefore, challenges God's divinity because it separates creature from creator. God is perfectly justified to let humanity reap the fruit of our disobedience, oblivion. But his perfect love will not allow it. So Anselm was left with this irreconcilable tension between God's perfect justice demanding satisfaction and his perfect love, which would not allow it. It was the great theologian Thomas Aquinas who overcame Anselm's final hurdle, saying, Anselm is right, but it was not the death of Jesus that made satisfaction, but rather his willing obedience to the point of death that was the redeeming feature. Christ offered to God not what was required so much as something God loved more than he hated the offense. Human beings were thus reconciled to God through God's love and the love and obedience of Christ. In the satisfaction model, sin violates God's honor and disorders the universe that he created. The offense that humanity has committed requires an act of infinite value. And so Jesus, as the God-man, makes satisfaction for us. This model seems logical, but it is limited in its overemphasis on Jesus' incarnation and death while ignoring his life. And it gives little place to the need for us to convert since our offense has been satisfied. Most of all, the social setting of medieval Europe undergirds the whole structure, and this, of course, is limited in its specific time and place and is rather irrelevant to society today. Still, phrases that you might recognize that come from this model might include, Jesus did what humanity could not do, uh, we have been justified by Christ, and Jesus paid my debt. The next model emerged out of the idea of being saved by and through God's love, and it is known as the moral exemplar model. Peter Abelard, the great theologian of Paris, argued. Jesus was an example of God's overwhelming love for humanity. The crucified Christ calls us to rekindle our love for God and thereby put away sin. Our redemption through Christ's suffering is that deeper affection in us which not only frees us from slavery to sin, but also wins for us the true liberty of sons of God so that we do all things out of love rather than fear. This moral exemplar was developed further by the female English mystic Julian of Norwich. 
She received a series of revelations in 1373 that gave her a really deep sense that God's very being is love. God's loving nature is so all-encompassing that not even sin can challenge it. God desires to be generous and faithful to his creatures. He is like our intimate and caring mother who refuses to allow us to be lost. Our salvation is about oneing with God by imitating Christ, a free response to God's love. Christ wants us to be his helpers, giving all our intentions to him, learning his laws, observing his teachings, desiring everything to be done which he does, truly trusting in him. We do this through a lifestyle of prayer and gradual process of personal transformation. In the moral exemplar model, sin is a failure to love God above all. And it results from and also causes us to forget God's love for us. The cross is the demonstration of God's love. And it calls us to remember him and to turn away from sin. The focus here is on the love of God, the teachings of Jesus, and the importance of our conversion. But it is subjective. It's overly reliant on human responses. And it doesn't adequately differentiate Jesus from other loving martyrs. Phrases that you might hear that relate to this would include the cross is the ultimate display of God's love for us, that love wins in the end, and to be imitators of Jesus. You all doing okay? All right. I'm used to teaching year 10s. Their attention span would have finished some time ago, so it's good. Uh, With the shift from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance and then the Reformation comes our last and perhaps the most significant model in our modern understanding of salvation, penal substitution. Articulated by the Reformation giants Martin Luther and John Calvin, penal substitution was a return to God as the righteous judge and the biblical imagery of sacrifice and ransom, but with a crucial twist. Luther and Calvin were both lawyers as well as reforming theologians, and they saw salvation like this. Sin is a violation of divine law for which the penalty is death. As the righteous judge, God had to condemn sin and demand it to be paid for. But crucially, Christ takes on this penalty, substituting himself in our place and bearing our punishment. Since Christ paid the penalty for sin, we do not have to, provided we are united to Christ through faith. All we need to do is accept this free gift of salvation, which cannot be earned by any good works on our part. One of the accusations against penal substitution is that it is God who demands a violent death to pay for sin, and he is the one to enforce it on Jesus. And this conflicts sharply with God as a loving father and his beloved son, and it appears somewhat abusive. Softer renditions of penal substitution have since emphasized instead the triune aspect of the incarnation. Jesus is God in human form. It was the judge himself whose loving and gracious nature 
moved him to take on human flesh in Jesus as our representative and then suffer the consequences of his own judgment in our place. It was an act of pure grace, satisfying both the demands of the law and God's own loving nature. While this is more palatable and still the dominant understanding of salvation for most Christians today, the relationship between sin and death is inorganic. Death is simply willed by God's justice. The blurring of the lines between Jesus and the Father conflicts with God's distinct persons, and it's problematic for many passages where Jesus clearly refers to his Father separately. Moreover, it's unclear what role conversion has again since sin has been taken care of by Jesus. As Jonathan Edwards, the American revivalist, famously preached, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Phrases that you might recognize from this model include, Jesus died for me, and Jesus bore the penalty for my sin on the cross. All things considered then, how are we saved? Is it through Paul's ransom model, or Athanasius' divinization, or is it Anselm's satisfaction, or Julian's moral exemplar, or Calvin's penal substitution? Yes. All of the above. There is an unavoidable, wonderful mystery embedded in our means of salvation, just as there is in our understanding of the Trinity or the Incarnation. As Tim Keller says, if God was small enough to be fully understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. None of these models are a complete answer individually. But together, they paint a vivid picture of how we are saved. God's overwhelming love refused to let us stay in our sins, broken in our relationship with him, locked in a fallen world separate from heaven. Coming as the God-man Jesus, God took on a human flesh. He walked among us and he showed us how to live as true humanity, reflecting God's image as we were created to do. He sacrificed his life by dying on a cross, bearing the full weight of the penalty of our sins in our place. And through his death, he ransomed us from slavery to sin. And by his resurrection, he defeated everything evil, created a bridge between God's space and our space, and he brought us into freedom. And all we have to do is believe in him and what he has done for us to accept his free gift of salvation and to turn away from our sinful lifestyles and pursue him instead, basing our life on the love that Jesus showed to everyone. We will be changed, and over time, we will be gradually transformed, redivinized, and grow to become like him. And when our days on this earth are complete, we will sleep in death in Christ, awaiting the day when Jesus will return and make all creation fully new, when sin and pain and death will be no more, and we will be resurrected to live again with him forever in new creation. That is the gospel message. That is how we are saved. It is as simple... It is as simple as Jesus died on a cross for my sins, and yet more rich and more wonderfully complex than we can possibly comprehend. Perhaps this is why John 3, 16 to 17 is uh, the most famous of all Bible verses on salvation. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. As we finish, I'd like to invite the band up. Uh, And shortly, Stanley is going to lead us in a bit of ministry. But I want to offer an invitation to everybody here. The more important question than how are we saved is, are you saved? Do you know our Savior Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to his care? Have you trusted him for your forgiveness of your mistakes? If you haven't but you'd like to this morning, there will be people up the front here who would love to pray with you. Secondly, I want to invite anyone who would like prayer for anything to come up to the front, and someone will pray with you. I know that sounds really broad, but hey, um, Jesus has opened the access to the Father, and he loves us, and he calls to us, and he eagerly waits for us uh, to take up his invitation and to draw close to him. So if there's anything that you would like prayer for, in just a moment, please do come on up, and people will stand and agree with you in prayer. Um, But to close, I want to finish with the word and to read from Philippians chapter 2. And then the band will play, and if you'd like to come up, please do. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. For though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks so much for joining us for today's message. We hope and pray that it's been most helpful. If you are keen to find out a little bit more about us as a church whanau or you'd like to touch base, then you can go to coast.org.nz and there you'll find information about our in-person services, online services, various resources and activities. Enjoy the day. Be blessed.